Welcome, freaks, to the inaugural episode of Puppet Masters and Castle Freaks. I know what you're probably thinking, which is, I did not think there would ever be a podcast devoted to both Puppet Masters and Castle Freaks. And here we are. I'm one of your hosts, Jared Hornbeck. And yeah, we are going to go along for a crazy, epic uh, B-movie thrill ride. Uh, I'm reporting from... Brooklyn, New York, one of the, you know, freak capitals of the world. I'm not too far from Coney Island. And who is uh, taking this joyous ride with me? Well, my name is Steve Guntley. I'm very happy to be here. I'm uh, reporting in from the second freak capital of the world, Austin, Texas. And this is the podcast that's all about mouth leeches, sexy psychics, and spiky eyeballs. And In other words, this is a podcast about full moon features. I just imagine a needle drop or a record scratch right there where someone's like a podcast just about full moon features. Well, you're in luck because it isn't just full moon features. I mean, we will be hitting everything in the full moon oeuvre, but we will also be hitting everything in the Charles Bandiverse. So if it's a Charles Band produced movie, if it's an Empire International Pictures or full moon or, you know, even something maybe from time to time that just feels like a kindred spirit to a full moon movie uh we'll be talking about anything from this canon uh we will be exploring the darkest depths of b-movie horror and we will be evaluating all things from the houses that charles band built i'm very excited to start digging in this we've been kind of talking about doing this for a while i think because we are both uh deep cut horror nerds i think and it doesn't really get much more deep cut than full moon features like this is uh this is kind of the the bastard stepchild of the whole horror subgenre but it's also a really important piece of filmmaking history just because this is one of the premier direct to video film labels like this is one of the biggest ones um yeah i mean i i think yeah we should probably talk a little bit about our personal history with Full Moon and with this whole wild and wacky uh, subgenre of films. I mean, for me, you know, I, I, okay, so I mean, we're both roughly around the same age, like late 30s, early 40s. So like we, we grew up in the video store era, like the prime video store era. And one of my fondest memories as a kid was anytime my mom would go grocery shopping, uh, there was a little video section in our grocery store that used to be a thing. And she would just like let me go wander around in the video store section while she was doing all the grocery shopping. That way I stayed out of the way. And it gave me an opportunity to basically memorize every VHS box in the entire store. And I was particularly fascinated by the horror section because A, I was afraid to watch these and B, I was not allowed to watch these. So there was something very uh, forbidden fruit and enticing about these. So I would I would glean the little bits of horror and gore from the little thumbnail images on the backs of these boxes. And there was always just like at least a dozen different full moon features. So, you know, I would see Puppet Master, or I would see uh, 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 Doll Man, or little things like that. Uh, demonic Toys always freaked me out. Like, the, the just the cover art of Demonic Toys freaked me out. And, like, it was years before I actually got around to sitting down and watching some of these. But I also became aware, like, I didn't even know this was part of the, the canon, but... Kids used to talk about Castle Freak 
on this the playground. Like there was always that one weird kid whose parents would allow him to watch whatever he wanted. And this kid rented and watched Castle Freak and told us. Yeah, about you're it. sitting across from him, my friend. Yes. Oh, you're the one. You're the you're the one purveying the smut to everybody. Uh, and like, I for the longest time did not believe that some of the things that this kid was telling me about Castle Freak actually happened in that movie. And then I watched it years and years later. I'm like, oh shit, yeah, yeah. He really he he bites a woman's vagina off in that. Okay, that's fun. Um, so it was just, it, it just all became part of this whole crazy lore that really just stuck in my head. And, and I was always fascinated to check him out. And that's why I'm excited to be doing this show because there's still a ton of these I have not seen. I've seen a decent amount of them, but there are a lot of these that have never crossed my radar. Uh, so I'm excited to dig into it. How about you? What, what's your history with these? So in a lot of ways, it's really similar to yours. Um, Full Moon was a company I wasn't so familiar with by name necessarily, but definitely by some of the properties. Um, I grew up in the 80s also. I went to the video store. We had a mom and pop video store that was right down the block from where I lived in Queens. We had a bigger video store, you know, the uh, corporate video store that we would go to. And I had a weird thing where I became enamored with horror Almost instantaneously after two things that happened. One was I was forbidden to watch Friday the 13th, A New Beginning, when it first came out on VHS. Okay. Uh, because my friend, I was staying at my friend's house and his older sister had a slumber party. And they rented Friday the 13th, A New Beginning. And they said, you're not allowed to watch this. You can't watch movies like this. And my friend and I found a way to kind of sneak into a place in the house where we could watch through a creak in a door on an angle. <laughs> and so, and you know, if you know anything about Friday the 13th, The New Beginning, there are a lot of boobies in that one. Yeah. So that was very formative. And I was like, oh, man, this is a whole world of stuff I don't know anything about that I can't wait to find out more. About the same time, maybe a year later or so, is when Dream Warriors was coming out on home video. And the mom and pop video store that was down the block from me had a life-size cardboard standee of Freddy Krueger. And there was like a cardboard tent next to it with a bunch of VHSs of Dream Warriors as a new release. And uh, I remember saying, I need to get this. I don't know what this is. I need to see this. I need to know more about this. And my parents let me rent the movie sort of under the guise of like, we're going to try this out. And if you're scared of it, no. But if not, what's the harm? But Freddy was such and, like a pop cultural fan. Like people, younger people don't realize like if Freddy was kind of like candy to a kid. Like which right. is a horrible thing to say for a child murderer. But like he was kind of like this movie yeah, character. Don't, that all don't accept candy from Freddy. Don't if you let, take anything take any. from this console, uh, from this uh, episode. But. I rented it. I fell immediately in love with it. I immediately became obsessed with Freddy and all things Freddy to the point where the following summer, part four was coming out in the theater. And I was in like second grade or something like that at this time, second or third grade. And my my mom let my cousin take me unsupervised to the movies to see part four in the theater. And you would have thought that I was seeing, you know, like I was at a David Bowie concert or something like I was enamored, like I was seeing the world's biggest rock star on the movie screen. <laughs> and it was crazy. And really from that moment on, I just became that person. I went to the video store and we had a weird deal worked out where my mom would let me rent two movies, except one of them had to be like a kid's movie. 
So I would leave the video store with like a horror movie. And then the other thing would be like a VHS of a half hour peanut special or a VHS <laughs> of the uh, old, you know, filmation adventures of Batman and Robin cartoon. Oh God. Or, or the, uh, the Archies or Josie and the Pussycats or some other Hanna-Barbera thing. And that was my thing. I would go to the video store. I would get, I almost said I would get an adult movie. That's not accurate. Yeah. But I would get, I would get a movie that was, uh, that was just meant for, for adults. adults. Yeah. Right. And a movie that was meant for kids. And, and then when I really liked something, I'd do the old uh, double VCR hookup and I'd record oh, the yes. movie. And then I would have my own personal copy of it and I could fit a couple movies if I recorded them on SLP. And my friends would come over and now we're getting into like fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade. And I still had a lot of friends who's had really protective parents and they would come over and I would, you know, we'd be like, all right, well, they're going to stay over. We're going to watch TV and wait till my parents went to sleep. And then I'd put, you know, I put on Dream Warriors or I'd put on A Nightmare on Elm Street. I put on Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 at age 12, you know, with a bunch of other 12 year olds. And this of is course, an invaluable service when you're like an elementary school right. kid. By and the so way. my There's my friends did not have access to these. Right. My friends would go home and then they would tell their parents and then my mom would get angry phone calls and it was a big thing. <laughs> but that never, you know, you go through phases in your life where you really, there's things that are in the for, the foreground or the forefront of what you really love to do. And I go, I went through phases of where this stuff was really up front and then it was sort of in the back of my brain, but it's always been there. And really, I'd say over the last 10 years, especially, I sort of went, no, you know what? Like, this is me. This is a big part of my personality. Like this needs to be front and center in a lot of ways. And so I went back to collecting movie scores and soundtracks and posters and uh, not a lot of, not a ton of physical media in other regards, but I just really embraced it. Tons of shirts. I'm actually wearing a Castle Freak t-shirt right now. Can attest. Which, yeah. Yeah. And so that it's just been part of my life. So it's in some ways a very similar upbringing to yours in relationship to horror and full moon and exploitation. I would same thing. I would walk through the video store, look at the cover art, judge based on the cover art. If I thought that this was worthy of taking home, sometimes I took something home that was utterly terrible. Other times it was a hidden treasure that I maybe would have never found. Yeah. And so I just really appreciate having been alive during a time when I was able to walk the aisles of the video store and peruse based on cover art because I would buy things that looked cool. And speaking of buying things that looked cool, Steve, a lot of people bought the VHS of the movie we're going to talk about today. They sure did. Uh, all right. So a little bit about the format of this show and kind of what we're doing here. Uh, basically, each week we are going to watch a different full moon feature or a different empire feature. It's just one of these connected movies from this whole huge universe. We've randomized most of the list, but with a couple of exceptions. We've curated these first couple of episodes to give sort of an introduction, give sort of our thesis statement for what we're trying to accomplish here. And we're also going to try and keep the series in order. Like, we're not going to, like watch every single movie in a series in order, but we are going to keep them chronological as much as we can. As for the rest, we'll just kind of randomize it and dig in deep and find uh, uh, some weird little hidden treasure from either the Full Moon or the Empire or the Moonbeam or all, all these different little sub-labels that Full Moon has. And we both felt that there's really no better way to start talking about this whole weird little enterprise than with Puppet Master. 
Puppet Master is the first full moon feature officially. It's also one of the most successful. It's one of the. It's definitely the one with the longest franchise. Eleven movies in this franchise, which I did not realize it was quite that many. Uh, but I think movies, it's even. I think it's more when oh, you right, count the like the offshoots and the spinoffs. It's like the full and, mooniverse is vast. Yeah, so it's like thirteen or fourteen. It's it's way up there. Uh, and it, it just feels like this is the movie that's really going to uh, demonstrate everything that we're looking to talk about on this show. Um, yeah, and so we're going to dig into that a little bit. I wanted to start off by giving a little bit of history just for if you're coming into this cold and you don't know what the hell we're talking about. You just like, you know, assumed that we had handsome voices and wanted to listen, um, you know, and you're not wrong. Uh, but yeah, it, we, we wanted to give a little bit of history about what we're getting into here. Um, so I think easily the most important figure that we're going to talk about on this show is a guy named Charles Band. Uh, Charles Band, he was born in 1951 in Los Angeles. He's the son of a filmmaker named Albert Band, who's also going to come up a lot on this show because uh, Charlie and his dad worked together quite a bit. Um, and yeah, he was a filmmaker. He's got this really crazy life. So two of the texts that we're going to be drawing from the most heavily on this show uh, one of them is uh, a companion piece, a full moon companion piece called It Came From The Video Isle, which is a really great, really in-depth uh, deep dive into everything full moon. And the other is Charles Band's autobiography, which is called Confessions of a Puppet Master. I'm, I just started reading it this week. I'm, I'm only about like 30 pages from the end of it. Uh, this book is a fantastic, funny, fast-paced, really entertaining read. He's got amazing stories from like all these different elements. You feel like he's withholding a lot of stories too. So there's potentially a whole other volume that he could go into here. Uh, but this book was published in 2021. It's a really great read if you want to get dig into it. And uh, it, it gives you a good idea of who Charles Band is. He's a very charismatic, very um, upbeat and positive, and also just kind of a shady guy by his own admission. He He's not above uh, a little double dealing, a little uh, uh, creative uh, filmmaking, uh, so to speak. But, but always he seems like he comes from a good place and uh, seems like a decent sort of guy. Um, so yeah, he was born to the son of uh, a filmmaker, and so he kind of grew up in this world. He spent a lot of his youth in Italy, where his father was filming a lot of those low-rent Hercules movies in the 60s and 70s. And he just developed a real love of filmmaking. In the 70s, he started taking on uh, production roles and started uh, producing his own films. His first significant hit was a movie called Tourist Trap, which is directed by David Schmoller, who we'll uh, be talking about again pretty, pretty soon here. That's from 1979. And that movie was successful enough that it started leading to a couple of other low-budget projects. Uh, another significant one was 1982's Parasite, which was the debut film of Demi Moore. Um, and when Band was trying to shop around a potential sequel to Parasite, he came up with the idea of just forming his own distribution company, and that is how Empire Films was born. Now, Empire Films was going to specialize in quick and dirty theatrical releases, like something that kind of flies under the radar. You could turn it around in like two or three weeks and make a profit off of it. The first kind of demonstrator of this concept was a movie called Ghoulies, which I believe came out in 1985. Uh, I believe 85. Yeah. And you've and seen the cover art for Ghoulies. So if you're thinking art. to yourself, oh, Ghoulies, what's that like? If you are between the ages of 35 and 50, you have seen 
the cover of Ghoulies. It's uh, a couple of gross little uh, puppety monsters crawling out of a toilet. Uh, it's a very striking image, and it's a definite uh, 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 power stance. You know, it's telling everyone what exactly this movie is. You know, and look, Ghoulies is a pretty blatant uh, Gremlins knockoff. There were a lot of Gremlins knockoffs after 1984, you know, because you could make these, like, small little puppets and get them into mischief. So we, we, we'd get hobgoblins and elves and munchies and things like that. But Ghoulies was one of the early ones that really hit. It, it cost next to nothing to make, and it made $35 million at the box office in the 80s, which is pretty astounding. And so with that, basically, Empire Films had the runway to start making a whole bunch of movies, and a lot of them were really big hits. One of them is like a genuine, like critically acclaimed horror classic. That's Stuart Gordon's Reanimator from 1986, which is like legitimately one of the greatest horror movies ever made. Um, but, you know, so he was cranking along throughout the 80s. He was doing really, really well, so well that he was able to buy Dino De Laurentiis' old movie studio in Rome, which I believe at the time was the largest film studio in the world. They used to film old, like, biblical epics there, you know, so they had these massive, massive sound stages. So Charles Band bought it, turned it into Empire Pictures. Uh, and then a couple years after that, by 1988, 87, profits were starting to dwindle debts were starting to accrue and Charles Band kind of got screwed out of the studio by an old family friend who basically just kind of snatched it out from under him but Charles Band uh, to his credit is a guy who does not sit around and wallow in his uh, defeats he kept on plugging away and he took a couple of the projects that he had salvaged from that failed Empire deal and started pitching them to Paramount he found a, uh, a kindred spirit at Paramount and the young studio executive who liked his moxie and put him in charge of uh, their new direct-to-home video label, which is going to uh, specialize in like quick, cheap horror movies or like exploitation films that you could put directly on a film shelf without having to go through all the rigmarole of theatrical distribution. And the first movie released under this new label, which a uh, band called Full Moon Features, was Puppet Master. Um, so Puppet Master was released October 12th, 1989, straight to video. Uh, again, they were thinking kind of like how you described the model for Empire, this kind of like low down, quick and dirty theatrical releases. That was what they originally planned to do for Puppet Master. Instead, they scrapped that and went straight to video. And this thing was a success Huge hit. On video. This yeah. was a huge hit on video, and, and this was one that I remember seeing the box for. I assume I rented it. I couldn't tell you what the first time was that I saw this movie. It wasn't one that stood out to me in the 89, 90, 91 sort of range, but I definitely knew it by reputation, I would say, by a few years later. So I yeah. maybe didn't see it until the mid-90s. But I also think that it ran on cable because I feel like this was a movie that I definitely saw skimming, you know, Showtime and Cinemax uh, in the early 90s and, you know, trying to find any sort of deviant art <laughs> that I could <laughs> that was on there. Because that's another thing, too. There's a lot of uh, crossover from stuff that was straight to video to then stuff that was kind of straight to cable or went quickly from video to cable. I feel like it's all very incestuous in a way. Oh yeah. And a lot of these titles were things like movies that we're going to talk about in the future. Yeah. Um, because 
Full Moon, you know, became this studio that was putting out B-movies, direct-to-home video, cranking movies out, I mean, just one after the other, to the point where they needed to branch out and, you know, have different divisions that they then end up with Torchlight and Moonbeam, which are like the adult-friendly and kid-friendly versions of Full Moon features. And from, I believe, Torchlight... Uh, a film will cover God, who knows sometime in the next few years called beach babes from beyond. Yeah. Which was a huge, uh, uh, Cinemax movie. I remember flipping through the channels and looking at the channel guide and saying beach babes from beyond. Oh, and it, there's nudity of this is a movie I have to watch. Oh, I mean, that's one of the movies that helped kind of, uh, uh, give that network, their moniker Skinamax. you know, it's like kind of the, the uh, soft core sort of uh, uh, fairly harmless but uh, audacious kind of uh, uh, exploitation film, you know, and these were these were all like big profitable hits, you know, eventually the relationship with Paramount would kind of break down. But Full Moon has not stopped uh, and they, they're still going. They're still releasing about a movie a month to this day, you know, and that's a pretty crazy turnaround. Like Charles Band really prides himself on. You know, you, you think of an idea and then uh, a month later it's a movie that's on shelves, you know, like they, they have these incredibly quick turnarounds. And so a lot of these movies we're going to get are pretty cheap looking because they are very cheap uh, and extremely silly, but also extremely topical. You know, Ban talks in his book a lot about how exploitation, the the label makes you think it's about like exploiting somebody, you know, but really it's about exploiting a moment. It's about exploiting the zeitgeist. And that's why a lot of his movies are operating on current fears, current anxieties or current events, you know? And uh, so one of the things that was kind of popular around the late eighties, thanks to the Chucky movies was killer dolls, killer puppets. And so there are so many killer doll and killer puppet movies that are coming out of, full moon and some of these are just because by, banned by his own admission uh pitches the same ideas because he forgets that he already made this movie and and we're going to talk about a, a cool baker's dozen of them at least at least yeah <laughs> and There's i'm so I, I meant like outside of the of puppet masters proper yeah also oh yeah yeah no it, it keeps going beyond that like uh, yeah, I think my first exposure to this movie, tell me if you remember this, because I'm already blanking on the name of All this right. disc, but in the pre-YouTube days, they would sell you DVDs that were kind of like horror movie compilations, kind of like greatest hit sort of things where you could see like clips from like a dozen different horror movies. And uh, it would show you like the best kills and things like that. And sometimes they would have bonus features. I think this one had commentary from Robert Englund, like on all of them, even the non-Freddy movies. And they showed the scene from this movie, the the elevator attack scene uh, from the end of the film where Gallagher is being beset upon by all the different puppets at the same time. And so that was my first exposure to this movie. Like uh, I, I'd seen, like like you, I'd seen it on the shelves, of course. And it's it's a very distinctive one because this has a lot of really cool like really cool designs for their creatures like you get uh, uh blade who's like this very gaunt looking uh, uh puppet with a trench coat and a knife hand and a hook hand you know and pinhead who's got like a, a human sized hands and then a tiny little head like these are really cool and memorable uh character designs they're all um how, how should i say this they're all unique 
and memorable in their own way. Yeah. Which I think is really cool because I think if once you get into this sort of like tiny terrors, we'll call them, of like your your gremlins, your ghoulies, your munchies, your hobgoblins, and now your puppets, mm-hmm. it would be really easy to have sort of a bunch of things kind of cut from the same mold. But I think what I like about the design of the puppets in Puppet Master is that they're all so unique and different from one another. Like there's no mistaking Blade, especially since... So we mentioned David Smoller, who's the director of this movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, He also worked a little bit uh, rewriting the script. One thing that shouldn't shock anyone who's seen this movie is that the script went through numerous rewrites, including while the movie was being made. And David Schmoller added some things to it. And one of the things that he did was I don't think the, the puppet of Blade was as descript as it ends up being in the movie. Mm-hmm. But he, a few years back, had made a movie for Charles Band uh, called Crawl Space, yes. where he directed Klaus Kinski. Which was allegedly a nightmare, uh, which uh, resulted in them coming to physical blows and Klaus Kinski, I I think it was Klaus Kinski threatening to kill David Schmoller, or or was it the other way around? No, no, it was was Kinski holding a knife to Schmoller's neck and Charles Band had to come in and talk him down. And this will not surprise anyone who knows anything about Klaus Kinski and the way he works and the fact that... He's very cool and normal and rational. The man was literally insane. Uh, You know, like, not not in a Hollywood way, like in a, uh, this man should be locked up forever kind of way. Uh, And, And so the the puppet design of Blade was changed by David Smoller to resemble Klaus Kinski. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, That's so amazing. when you look at that gaunt face and the straggly whitish hair, um, it, it's all there. And, and maybe, you know, the, wow. the blade on Blade's hand is uh, reminiscent of the blade that, that Klaus Kinski held up to David Smoller when he was threatening to murder him. And Schmoller, we should mention, is uh, uh, he's a Texas boy, and he he kind of came up working. I think he was a crew member on the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and that's how he kind of came to Band's attention. He directed Tourist Trap for him, which was kind of his first big hit. And uh, uh, he was also like, you know, he he loves Charles Band, and Charles Band loves him, but he's also the first one to say like. Charlie, your script is stupid. This idea is stupid. I don't like this movie. And to this day, he does not like the movie Puppet Master, which he directed and rewrote a significant amount of. Um, what do you think about this movie? Like, I, I mean, it's it's a it's a popular movie, uh, and it's definitely an important movie in terms of what this studio is trying to accomplish. But uh, is this is this a go to movie for you? Okay, so I'm going to start first by saying I think the. DVDs you were describing before. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but were they the Boogeyman series? I think so. Something like that. Yeah, because yeah, those were DVDs of horror compilations that were just sort of like greatest hits with some talking heads, um, you know, yeah, giving some behind like the scenes stuff. Uh, so if it wasn't those, it was probably something similar, um, which I'm sure like that scene is a pretty memorable scene. I wouldn't put it past it for it to be on one of those. So... The plot of this movie is that there's a bunch of psychics who find themselves going against a former colleague of theirs who has pulled them all into this location of the Bodega Bay Inn. Um, Which is a Hitchcock reference. That's where uh, the birds took place. Yes. 
And so they get there and he's sort of getting revenge by having all of these super cool puppets do things, different things to all of these people. And somehow this starts with Nazis. Yeah. Okay. So this is something like, I, so I have only seen this first puppet master movie, but I do know Nazi imagery becomes a big part of this franchise going forward. Uh, yeah. In this one, it appears that Andre Toulon, uh, the, the titular puppet master is being persecuted by the Nazis. I, I don't know if that, I, I think that continues. I'm not sure, but I think the, the Nazis are trying to use his abilities. Like he, he's gained the ability to bring these puppets to life through some kind of Egyptian magic. Um, and I, I think it's interesting this opening scene because we, I think we're being asked to sympathize with these puppets a lot, like to a point where we're like, yeah, they, they are very kind of sweet, sympathetic characters, despite having knife hands and everything like that. Like uh, <laughs> it's only later that they're kind of used for evil. But uh, yeah, Andre Toulon is played by William Hickey, who is the, the you know him from uh, Pritzi's Honor and uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, things like that, like a very distinctive gravelly voiced old man. Academy Award nominee, yeah, William, William Hickey from yeah. Two, yeah, like three years after his Academy Award nomination, here he is making this movie. And I want to go back to your question, Steve, about how I feel about the movie. Um, I think that this is a pretty effective movie. Yeah. I think it's flawed, but yeah. I think it's effective. And you were talking before about how these are cheap movies in general and and this was i mean this was a four hundred thousand dollar budget movie mm -hmm. which even in 1989 standards is a very low budget movie oh yeah and i but i think that there's a lot of character here i think there's a vision i think everyone involved in this sort of understood that we're going to play the humans particularly. We're going to play this a certain way. I think everyone sort of knew when it was time to sit back and really let the, the puppets take center stage because that's what this movie is about. I mean, that's why you're taking this off the shelf of the video store is because you want to see the design of these puppets. You want to see how they move. You want to see the effects. You want to see, you know, how they're going to kill people in creative ways and i think like for a for a cheapo movie from 1989 there's some really fun practical puppet effects and stop yeah. motion and i think we, we haven't really talked uh about the puppets pro uh themselves except for uh a couple of them like pinhead and blade but you know one of the puppets is leech woman and very distinctly gross uh, uh, puppet creation here. Yeah, and I think the leech woman. Well, I should say scenes plural, but the first scene in the bed with the with the man tied up is really disgusting. Yeah, I mean, and there, it, there is a bit of a uh, because these puppets look so cool and the cover art looks so cool. There is a little bit of a when are they going to get to the fireworks factory kind of vibe to this movie, like. I don't know that I care about any of the human characters um, or, or really this, the whole psychic subplot thing going on here. Like David Schmoller pitched his idea as kind of like a big chill with killer puppets, you know? So it is, it's a reunion for a funeral of a bunch of people with these special psychic abilities. And I like that each one kind of has a different variety of, of psychic ability. 
Yeah, I mean, these are, you know, this is a B movie. So there's going to be your sort of issue, B movie problems with be it production, performance, uh, you know, pacing, whatever it might be. But I do like the fact that they're, they seem to have at least made an attempt to give you character types and give you enough sort of unique detail that the people aren't interchangeable. And I, I like that about it. I'm not saying that they're completely fleshed out three-dimensional characters in any no. way. But you can tell the difference between the people. And I, I appreciate for that because let's – I'm going to take this moment – to sort of just say to our listeners who, in case anyone who is listening is a huge Puppet Master fan, is a huge Full Moon Features fan, um, we're not here to just point out, you know, the problems with these movies and shit oh, all no. over them and, and rake them across the fire or anything like that. I kind of look at these movies like they're TC Tuggers. You know what I mean? Like these <laughs> movies are... Maybe superfluous, a little weird, a little unnecessary, but you know what? They exist, and you don't make fun of them. You don't watch them ironically. They're not a joke. They're not a, they're not a joke movie. And I just want our listeners to know that, that like we are sincerely doing this now. We yeah, are no, going I, to obviously... Oh yeah, no, it's coming from a place of real affection. Like whether whether we're, we're not going to love all of these movies, but we, we are... Uh, we feel a great deal of affection towards the concepts behind these movies and like why they exist. Yeah. And there's a lot going for puppet master for it being such a, you know, grade B or grade Z kind of straight to video. I mean, it was shot on film. We should say it wasn't shot on videotape. I mean, you can look at it and this thing doesn't look like sledgehammer or no. things. I mean, this looks like a movie, and I'll talk more about in a second the specifically the type of movie I feel like this movie looks like. But I'm sort of impressed, as, as thin as the characters themselves might be, I am impressed with the way they were able to pull not just actors who are known for other things, but the fact that, I think it says a lot for Charles Band, the fact that a lot of people from his early movies and from Empire came back to work with him again in this venture. And so you have a lot of these sort of full moon stable of people like, 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 uh, I'm sorry, empire stable of people like Schmoller and others who, who are doing the work. It was all very familial with everything going on. And, you know, you have, uh, Irene miracle playing, mm -hmm. uh, Dana, the psychic. And, you know, she was known to people best known to people as, the woman who pressed her boob against the the glass in Midnight Express in right. the much parodied, you know, oh Billy scene and, from the cable guy. And our, our lead here is Paul Lamatt, who is probably the biggest name in this movie at the time. Uh, people may not remember who he is now, but he was the star of American Graffiti, and he was like the runner up choice for Han Solo. Uh, before Harrison Ford came in. Like, at one point, this man was going to be Han Solo. Uh, and now he is in Puppet Master with, I'm going to just say, the worst head of hair I've ever seen in my life. Maybe it's, a, it, it's him, or, him or the doctor in this movie. There's a, there's a couple of really unfortunate male haircuts in this movie. He is really close to an Anton Chigurh. 
Yes, and, yes. And it's, but it's like a receding not hairline, Anton Chigurh. Like, yeah. it's, it's not a good look. He, he, he strikes me as a less tall Angus Scrim. Yeah, 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 yeah. In totally, some ways. Totally. He plays yeah. a good game, boy. Yeah. He, <laughs> yeah, he he does. But yeah, I mean, he was, like you said, runner up for, for Han Solo. And I also just love the fact that, again, as some loyalty to Charles Band, you get the amazing Barbara Crampton as woman at carnival. Like, okay, that's a good performance. Like her and the, the, the actor playing her uh, 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 fiance in that scene are quite funny and like really deadpan and kind of underplay everything, you know, like, and, but I think this movie really comes to life with the puppets. I think that's something it really delivers on. You have this really actually pretty amazing stop motion effects from uh, a guy named Dave Allen, who uh, unfortunately would die a few years after this from cancer. But he's a recent Academy Award winner. He worked on the special effects for young Sherlock Holmes. And uh, Charles Band is obsessed with stop motion animation. And so he always insists on getting it whenever he can. And the stop motion shots in this look fluid and like really effective, you know. And then you get some goofy stuff, of course, like when they're working with actual puppets and you can almost see the people off screen, like working the hands and everything like that. Like, but that's just kind of part of the charm. And each one of these puppets is distinctive and gross in their own weird way. So let me break down the five puppets that we get here. We have do it up. Let's do it. Blade, of course, is the signature puppet of the entire franchise. He's going to get his own spinoff movie, like, I think last year that came out or something really recently. Very recent. He's he's like the star monster of this whole franchise, and uh, he's the Klaus Kinski one. Um, then we have Pinhead, who is a guy with a, a big body and a little head who's kind of the muscle. You get Jester, who seems to be kind of like this persistent... I don't really know Jester's deal other than his rotating face, and I'm excited to kind of dig into the lore a little bit because those three that I just mentioned, Blade, Pinhead, and Jester, are the only ones that are in every single movie. Um, then we get Leech Woman, who we mentioned before, who looks like a sexy woman um, who can uh, uh, regurgitate leeches onto people's body, uh, as most sexy women can. And uh, who's our last one here? Tunneler is our last one, who was always my favorite when I was looking at the VHS box as a kid because he's got a drill for a head, uh, pretty self-explanatory what his thing is um and uh but it's a pretty cool little crop and we're going to expand on the stable of puppets as we go sure and i should say that i i love the design of tunneler also and one of the great things about one of the things i love about the sort of introduction of both leech woman and tunneler is that they're working together yeah. It's sort of like I expected them to break into that Garbage Pail Kids the Movie song about how important it is to work together. Um, but it's great because what I really like about that is that I think they recognize that they had sort of power in numbers. Like there's a lot of puppets. We want to give them an all a chance to do something. The people are coupled up. It's so much more fun to have the man and the woman dismembered by two separate puppets. Yeah. Like I love the fact that she's you know, drilled by Tunneler while looking in the bed. And I will say for a B movie, pretty good looking blood. It is. Yeah. It's and, pretty and then and, and, his and leech, course, leech woman scene is just so memorable and so disgusting. And you said the word charm before, and I think you really nailed it. I think there's such a charm to me, at least for practical effects. And it's like, I mean, the, the cool thing about this is looking at the leeches come out of Leech Woman's mouth. 
is that you don't look at the puppet and wince because it's a puppet. It's supposed to be a puppet. Yeah. So even if like you can tell that they're switching puppets for different scenes and that this one's design has its mouth open and this one's has its mouth closed, that doesn't matter because you're looking at essentially inanimate objects anyway. Yeah. And so they don't have to, you know, there's times in movies where they, they flip from a person to an effect and it's it's really chintzy or cheap or obvious but here it doesn't matter because you're looking at a puppet regardless <laughs> i mean the the moments where you bump up against it are like when uh, irene miracle is fighting pinhead you know and it's basically she's picking up a stuffed animal and throwing it across a room you know and like, you can see that it's just like all right you know but but it also adds some limitations to the villains which i think is also important like to you know they they are very small and they need to kind of wait for the situation to be stealthy you know to to kind of break in you know we we mentioned uh sex psychics in our intro and that's kind of where w one of the hallmarks of a full moon feature is just lots of gore and lots of uh, uh kind of casual nudity and this game this movie delivers on that um there's a woman who She's a uh, I forget the term they said, but she she gets a psychic charge from objects like she can touch an object and she can really feel like the emotional history left on it. And uh, her powers seem to be mostly sex based, like she will sit on a bed and realize like which movie stars used to have sex on this bed and it would make her all horny. And, you know, so, you know, it's it's just one of those things that we're going to be uh, encountering over and over. And it's a ridiculous concept to kind of introduce. But. It's all played in good fun, um, you know. But and like I said, there things things escalate really nicely, and we get some nice puppet carnage by the end of the movie, which culminates in all of the puppets ganging up on kind of the big bad of the movie. And there, there's some stuff here that I'm still kind of like, you know, it it lost my attention a little bit when they're talking about like uh, uh, who this Gallagher guy is and like is he dead? Is he not dead? And all this stuff with Egyptian curses and he's using these puppets to do his evil bidding and then they turn on him. Like I wasn't super following that and I, from what I understand of the rest of the franchise, it doesn't really matter from here on out because it's going to focus more on the puppets, right? Yeah, I will say one thing is this movie is a little too overstuffed with um, the psychobabble and gobbledygook and all of these sort of uh, exposition pieces of Egyptian curses and this and that. And it's, it's a lot. It's like at the end of the day, this is a killer puppet movie. Yeah. And so let's let's stay in our lane a bit. And I think this is no better illustrated than, you know, the, the early in this movie, there's a cut. And even though I do like this movie, uh, there is a cut that makes me laugh out loud every single time, which is that the movie starts. And I want to give it credit for not that it does a ton of period detail, but I do feel like the 1939 stuff in the very beginning with Toulon it looks good enough like it's yeah. exactly what it needs to be but there's this whole cold open sequence of you know nazis coming to to take over and you go through that and i feel like you if there's a fade to black and it's like okay well that's not how i expected this movie to open all right well we got that out of our system and then it cuts to harvard university <laughs> and I just laugh every time because it's like now we're going to Harvard University and then we were introduced, you know, to our main character, uh, Paul Lamatt as Alex. And it's like, 
okay, this movie is just getting to where we think want it to be in a really circuitous uh, route. Yeah. And it, it is overstuffed. And I will say I have not seen a lot of these movies. I've seen a few of them. Yeah. Um, and of the ones I've seen, this one is actually not my favorite of the series. Right. So there's going to be a sequel. Well, when we get there, I'll say at the, you know, at the time, and you may even know because you may agree with me at that point, or we'll probably maybe even discuss it off mic. But I do, I, I do think there's too much here because I think they were trying to have, this is a movie, an element of this is a movie for adults. For when, sure. when very much, you know, the cover art and, and what it really is in spirit is for kids. But I said before that this is looks like a movie and a certain type of movie. Aside from, you know, your uh, Ray Harryhausen and Phil Tippett and stuff like that with and uh, David Allen stop motion stuff, which sort of looks one way. A lot of the stuff with the adults really struck me as reminding me of Italian horror movies of which I'm a big yeah. fan and I really well, love giallos and all kinds of it- Italian horror movies it's one of my favorite subgenres of horror to be quite honest and this movie was shot by Sergio Salvati and he worked with uh Charles Band multiple times to my understanding I think from through uh Empire and and some Full Moon stuff and he was sort of known for having worked with Lucio Fulci. Yeah. And he shot Zombie and he shot the entire Gates of Hell trilogy, which oh, wow. is a City of the Living Dead, The Beyond, and The House by the Cemetery. Yeah, yeah. And I get that sense watching that. There is sort of a slickness to the scenes with the adults in this, or with the people, I should say, when it's not an effect. And I I like that about this movie. And I think, again, maybe I'm sort of a broken record in some ways, but for a movie that's this cheap about killer puppets that's released straight to video, it's pretty competently made in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, no, this this isn't like, uh, yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right. It's not incompetent. It's made by professionals and it's got a lot of stuff to really like about. I really like the setting of this kind of like uh, ramshackle old hotel that does not actually exist. It's not there. Um, but they, they have this great uh, kind of multi-layered hotel that you can explore. And uh, yeah, no, I think there's a whole lot to like about this movie. I This is the second time I've seen this before, just like watching it for this episode. And I liked it more this time than I did the first time. Um, I, I think I was a little bored by it the first time. But like the puppets really clicked with me this time. And the fact that like we are being asked to sympathize with the puppets to a certain degree. Like they are quite literally puppets. They are being controlled by whoever wants to control them. So they are fairly innocent in and of themselves, despite what gross purposes they may be designed for. It's kind of all about who's controlling them, you know, the evil people behind the scenes. So you do get to sympathize with these little creatures a little bit. And I think something about that makes them a little bit more lovable in the same way that we eventually found like Freddie and Jason to be lovable, quote unquote, in their own ways as pop culture figures, you know. And I think that's kind of the key to making us care about these puppets going forward. I did have a Freddy Krueger stuffed animal like pillow doll. So he was he was lovable. (laughs) 
Some kids had kids Hulk Hogan and I child molester. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who is he's going to invade your dreams? <laughs> yeah. Again, I that think it's still so bizarre to me that that was such a huge pop cultural moment. Uh, yeah. I had I actually still have the uh, it came out between Dream Warriors and the Dream Master. Um, they put out a Nightmare on Elm Street sticker book and the book has uh, its pages with like uh, on printed like screen printed on the pages is like these background images of stuff from the movies. And then there are spots where there's a little caption saying like, here's where, you know, Glenn meets his demise in the bed. And then right above it would be like sticker 81 and sticker 82. And you oh, yeah, would yeah, buy yeah. packs and put them on and then the picture would be there. And the best and, thing was that this was marketed at kids, but the pictures of the stickers were so graphic, literally just still frame shots from the movie. Like one of them is a picture of like Amanda Wiss laying on the bed with her nightie open with the four slashes down her stomach, like, yeah. or her being dragged across the ceiling and across the wall. And it's like, yeah, this stuff was really uh, marketed towards children. Like I had that. I had the Freddy glove. Yeah. The toy glove. I had, like I said, I mean, a stuffed animal talking Freddy doll. Freddy was a staple on MTV. Like he was always introducing music videos, you know? And and I I feel like like to kind of bring it back to the competence that you mentioned in Puppet Master, I feel like that's sort of the thing that sets Full Moon aside from something like Troma, which I think would probably be its closest like comparison company. With Troma, I feel like they are reveling in the fact that their movies are bad. They're reveling in the fact that these movies are tasteless and gross and like incompetently made and silly and stupid. And they're they're fun. They're fun movies for that regard. But I feel like Full Moon, they, they're not setting out to be bad. They're not setting out to be terrible. They're kind of just not too worried about it. You know, they're not they're they they're they know they're in their lane and they know what kind of movies they're making. They're not going to try and make actual willful trash, although I think we're going to kind of devolve into that later in Full Moon where we're getting the the ginger dead mans and the evil bongs and things like that, um, which we will cover in detail. But we, uh, yeah, we will be taking a trip to Franchise Town. We will many, many times in this. And I'm just going to come right out now and say it. There are a couple of full moon features uh, franchises and empire franchises wherein I I sort of feel like the first movie is actually pretty good. And this is kind of one of them. I I think if you ask me to rate Puppet Master on a scale of one to ten, I would give this, you know, for, for what it is and what I'm looking for, I would give this is probably somewhere like a hard seven for me in yeah. like I, I like this well enough and I get enjoyment from certain things. I don't think it's a great movie. It's not a stone cold classic. It's not a masterpiece. There are problems and flaws with it, but it's watchable. It's competently made. And it's like surprisingly clever and surprisingly workmanlike for something that was churned out so quickly and cheaply. Yeah. And there's going to be a couple of franchises coming up. Now I'm not counting e- uh, evil bong and ginger dead man right. in that. When I now, say that, we might love those. We uh, might, I'm we, not we very well that, might. We might love them, but there are a couple of franchises name franchises of things that are, you know, uh, that are sort of like the big titles for Empire and Full Moon, 
where I'm going to come to the defense of some of them that they're actually pretty good straight to video movies. Yeah. No, there there are going to be quite a few in here that I think uh, that I'm really looking forward to. And I'm kind of in the same page. I'm like a 6.5 or 7 out of 10 for for the first puppet master and like it's flawed. It's got some pacing issues, but I, I, it's made me excited to see where this series is going. Like I, I want to uh, get a little bit more puppet carnage going on and, and see uh, the roster expand and see some stuff like that. So I'm, I'm excited to dig into it and uh, we're going to get to all of them over time. And, um, but uh, I, I think for now, what are we looking forward to next week? I think we are, we're going to be jumping into a, different film a different era of this um uh, uh development that is kind of important for what we're talking about i think we're, we wanted to talk about an empire film next right we're going to jump back to an empire film we're going to talk about sort of the early collaboration between charlie band and the great tim thomerson mm-hmm. and uh we're going to talk next week about the original trancers from 1984, I believe, is super limited theatrical release, mostly known as, I think, an early five, 85 video release. Yeah. Uh, one of the movies that Charles Band is most proud of, uh, and he, he actually directed this one, and I know, like, Quentin Tarantino is a big fan of this movie. Like, it, it has, this one has a lot of, like, crossover appeal, and uh, I'm excited to talk about it. I have not seen it. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm excited to talk about this one. And this is another one that is going to kick off a long franchise, but I feel like this is a good opportunity to look at some of the early success. And then after that, we'll look at one of the uh, uh, later franchises in the full moon to kind of see the full scope of where this whole franchise is going. Um, but I'm really excited to dig into all of these. Uh, uh, we, we really are both uh, uh, genuine castle freaks in the sense. And, and, <laughs> and, and puppet, or are you more of a puppet master? Or are you more of an evil boss? Nobody listens to anything I say, so I'm definitely not a puppet master. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? I'm trying to think no. what... Yeah, yeah, seriously. I'm trying to think which... Uh, like, if, if there were a franchise... I, I, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a killer bimbo... Although that's not a franchise, I think, but we will hit Assault of the Killer Bimbos uh, sometime soon. I'm not a cannibal woman in the avocado jungle of death, although we will definitely hit that one a little bit later on for sure. You are a bit of a sorority babe in the slimeball bolorama. Oh, that, you know, I would... That is a franchise. There are two of them. You know what? I was just going to say, if you go by the first movie alone, I agree with you. There's a second one of those, which I have never seen, so looking forward to it. That came out like last year, like a very recent sequel to that movie. Yeah. So, so I'm, we're going to be I'm digging in a, into all of these, and 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 uh, it's going to get gross, it's going to get weird, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, listeners, thank you so much uh, for embarking on this uh, crazy. Uh, I don't even want know what to call it. Just sort of ride odyssey, uh, odyssey mm-hmm. through uh, this uh, B movie treasure and trash trove that is. Full Moon Features, you know, and Empire International Pictures and and anything Charlie Band. Um, We hope that you, you know, have enjoyed listening to this episode. If you have, uh, make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss any of the new episodes that drop. And we will be, uh, we're looking for, you know, people to sort of reach out to us also um you can find me on instagram at uh, underscore cowboy underscore jerry um and you can send me a message and let me know what you thought of the episode what you think of full moon features if you if we left something out if you disagree with something we said because 
I think we were pretty agreeable in this episode. I think the further in this we get, we'll probably butt heads a little bit. And I think we'll bring different perspectives to the microphone. But uh, yeah, if you have any thoughts about full moon features or anything that you want to let us know about, uh, you can reach out and find us on our social media. Yeah, you could find me on Instagram at Minotaur Matador. And uh, yeah, feel free to reach out. And also, if you're watching these movies along with us, a lot of these are available on free streaming services like Tubi and Freebie and things like that. So they're pretty accessible. I, I think they were there were, for a while. There was like an Amazon channel of like full moon features where all of them were streaming. So all of these are available in digital streaming formats. You might need to dig a little bit for some of them, but most are available for free. So watch along with us uh, and, and feel free to send us your notes and comments and thoughts and feelings and, and vibes and all of that. So. All right, listeners, we will see you next week for uh, as we visit uh, 1984 Tim Thomerson and a young Helen Hunt in Trancers. See you then. Mm-hmm.